0: gives his people a bird's eye view of life and he gives us a bird's eye view of events and experiences because our position with god in christ is that we are seated at his right hand that's a uh, privilege but it's also a responsibility that means that you and i are not only privileged but obligated to see things from god's vantage point would you agree with that just kind of setting your thoughts and when you can, when you can, when you can oversee, that is our term episcopate. So you can just learn a little Greek grammar. Uh, when you can be privileged to oversee, it doesn't mean you're over people in the sense of a kind of hierarchical authority. It just means you have a position to see things broadly. And when you have a biblical worldview, and that's that's what the Bible is about, giving you and I a biblical worldview, how to see the world. Through the lens of Scripture, you get to see the world from a bird's eye view. The bird's eye view that we actually have is that we are able to look down from heaven on earth with the language of Scripture that allows us to learn how to be comfortable with being seated with Christ in heavenly places and having a divine perspective on events. If we were doing a QA, I would ask you the question what would be the emotional and psychological benefit of? a biblical bird's eye view. What would be the blessing of being seated in heavenly places, looking down upon the events that are going on in the world? You can probably take that down for Friday's Q&A when we get at it, because that that is where God will have you and I to find our comfort. So Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, would um, instruct us in this regard. This would talk to us about our kind of emotional makeup, our psychological well-being which is the same as our spiritual confidence. The Colossians text would say it say if you then be what <clears throat> risen with Christ. If ye then be risen with Christ. That's not a conditional clause there that is a conclusio clause. Literally it could be translated since then you being risen with Christ this is what we're called to do. Seek those things which are below. Okay, just want to know just want to know (laughs) because you got two people in the world you got people that are seeking things below and you've got people that are seeking things above and one of the things the apocalypse does and you guys know this if you've been keeping up with me in the apocalypse is it makes a distinction between people who dwell in heaven and people who dwell where on earth that dichotomy runs all the way through the apocalypse and where earth dwellers are, they are in danger and susceptible to all of the horizontal events that take place. And the reason why they're susceptible to them is because they don't have a what? A bird's eye view, right? When you have a bird's eye view, you can actually see things coming and you can see things going when you have a bird's eye view. So that's what I mean. As a Christian, you and I are privileged to have a bird's eye view. So I'm going to be actually Like I said, I'm going to be kind of vetting and cultivating and and positioning you and I for a discussion on Friday around the trumpet judgments and particularly the seventh trumpet because I've been making some observations over the last couple of months about where I feel like we are in this uh, epic of time. We've been talking about resets and I've been uh, contemplating that you and I are very You and I are in a very, very serious transitional point in human history. Not that we haven't been here before as human beings, we have, but I want to show you biblically why my argument is that we are probably in the latter part of the sixth reset and moving into, if not also already in the seventh reset, which would be equivalent to the seventh trumpet. That's what your outline is about, so don't don't be afraid or anything, just be ready to have have the conversation so i'm going to be actually dealing with you with what is called biblical theology this is a historiography of god's purpose on the earth we'll be able to run through this in about 30 minutes then i'm going to ask you a couple questions in regards to that and what they are going to be basically are seven resets and i think you'll be able to see it it'll help you understand maybe where we are in in our in our um in our world and, and what we can expect and what we need to uh, position ourselves to do. Let me open us in prayer. Let's begin this conversation because we only got about 50 minutes. Father, we thank you for your kindness and your goodness to us. We're asking now that you grace us to enter into your presence quorum deo, that you would grant us not only the privilege of being here in our bodies, but that we would be here in our heart, soul, mind, uh, that we would pay attention to him, that we would be on the path, that we would be able to think your thoughts after you, that that we would be privileged to hear your word once again and help us to see your movements in the world, the movement of your spirit, the movement of your body, the movement of your gospel, the movement of your son as he governs and orchestrates and leads and guides all of the affairs of this world. Help us to be able to be a guide to the blind and ear to the deaf a voice to the mute. Help us to be healing to the sick. Help us to be wise to the foolish. Help us to be the strong to those that are weak. Lord, help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So we're coming to you now on the grounds of your son's blood. We need to be washed and purged and cleansed and sanctified continually by his blood. And we're coming to you on the grounds of his righteousness, our standing, us in him, him in us, and we and you and you and us. And so help us now, Lord, to be partakers of the divine nature. We pray this for us. We pray it for our families. We pray it for our children, our children's children, unto the third and fourth generation of them that love you and keep your commandments. We pray this for the body of Christ around the world in Jesus' name. All right, now the first thing that I want to do, if you follow me in your outline, this will help you really easy. I want to make some observations. The events of biblical history have a theme events the events of biblical history have a theme i'm not going to tell it to you i want you to discover it when we work through the verses it's going to be a particular term that you should be able to extract while we're reading and that theme is going to also be connected to or that term is going to be connected to what i am calling the commons the things that constitutes the way that God interacts, intervenes, interjects himself into humanity and moves humanity down the road of purpose and design. So there are two things you're going to be looking for when I read through these verses. I'm going to ask you, because this is called expository what? Listening, listening carefully to hear it. We want to exegete the scriptures. We want the scriptures to speak for themselves and show us terms and ideas that will help us grasp the theme. So the events of biblical history have a theme running through their execution, which both coordinates and advances their purpose purposes. And what I mean by that, as we look at these verses, they will be progressive and they will be coordinated. They will be connected, coordinate, progressive concepts running through the Bible. This is what we call progressive theology progressive theology is that point a to point b to point c to point d are coordinates connected together expanding sometimes retracting and then expanding again depending on god's purpose but there's a continuity running through those pieces they are not disjointed they are connected like jesus said in john chapter 10 the scriptures cannot be broken Your your Bible from Genesis to Revelation is a composite whole, like a puzzle piece section. All the pieces connect. It's not easy to see, but this one will be because I'm dealing with you this time again with what I would consider big building blocks. Sometimes we get into the minutiae, but this time is about just the big building blocks of biblical theology across the history of Scripture to where you and I are now. And I'm hoping what that will do is dilate your mind. We're talking about dilation like you dilate your eyes, dilate your mind so that when we get a little bit into the weeds around the trumpet judgments in Revelation chapter 11, you can at least have a kind of context if that makes some sense. All right. So I'm just going to be starting with verses and I'm going to suggest that the verses that I share with you are epic event passages that lay down God's design and purposes, that verse upon verse that I share with you will be both progressive and repetitive in their intrinsic purpose and design. They will progress, but they will also be repetitive. The first verse that I want to call your attention to is what I call the beginning of the first reset. A reset is when there is a major change that takes place in the plan, a major change. The change doesn't change the plan. The plan remains the same. It's just that there is a shift or a reset, a modification that is actually intrinsic to God's design. So you know God's never reacting. He's always responding. Have I taught you that before? Right, so understand that if God knows everything if he sees everything if he's in control of everything he's never reacting you and i react because we don't see everything you and i react because we don't control everything but god if he knows then that means he's not surprised and if he's not surprised that means he also has a plan for why that thing happened this is how we make our way down history all right so the first one is going to be our genesis text this is called the beginning of the reset number one. This is the Adam and Eve initial uh, mandate by God. And it's in Genesis 1:26 and 27. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And notice what it says. I want you thinking with me. I know you've read this verse a thousand times. That's what makes it dangerous for you. <laughs> Here's what it says. And God said, now see, we can go to teaching, can we not? What a beautiful thing that God talks. So what we have here is also what we call a soliloquy, fashion, mode of communication where the person that's talking is talking to himself about his own plans and purposes. That's a soliloquy. So God doesn't mind doing that. He can just be walking and talking. He says, you know what? I'm going to let my creatures in on what I'm up to. Okay, so God's talking. He said, let us make man in our what? All right, so there you go. This is repeated in your Bible in many different ways consistently that mankind is not the accidental product of some kind of unintelligent uh, biological disaster or um, our progress. Mankind is a a divinely purposed creature. Now, this is going to play a role in what I'm I'm, I'm asking you to think about in terms of terms, okay? So God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth, a very vast vision that God has for a creature that he hasn't made yet. Would you agree with that? A very vast vision. In that verse, you can really go into the minutiae of what every line is saying about God and about man. This creature that God is making is special, is he not? Like really special, because if you look at the verse carefully for me, that verse right there encompasses the whole scope of human existence. You can see it in what we call the progressive unfolding of God's purpose for mankind. You can see it in here in the verse. Look at the next verse, because this will speak to it as well. So God created man in his own image and the image of God created he him. Male and female created he what? Right, so verse 26 and verse 27 are bookends as to what God would do and then how God would do it. So the what is in verse 26, the how is in verse 27. This is what we call in theology an exegetical. It's a greater insight into the way in which the plan unfolds itself. You don't ever want to separate verse 26 from 27. Because when you do, you get the 21st century uh, Western experience in California. All right, so this is what I call the first event. And in this event, you have in your outline, our theme for the year is called what? Arise, move and go, right? And I just put arise and go, because if you actually understand verse 26 of our narrative of our text, Adam and Eve are on a mission, are they not? They're on a mission. Are they on a mission? Right, and they have to arise, move, and go. Now, we know enough of our Bible to know that they're getting ready to get down the road. Even before God tells them he has ordained that they take a journey, right? He's ordained that. They are going to take a journey. We know that because Genesis 3 tells them, all right, you got to pack your bags and leave genesis 3 verse 20 uh 23 pull that up you got so we're still at number one in genesis three twenty three. therefore the lord god did what sent him that is adam and eve forth from the garden of eden to do what till the ground from whence he was taken now they are out there in the world still doing what god had said that they were supposed to do are they not This is what I meant about the continuity of the purpose, even though the design has changed slightly. The plan, the major plan, is going through a reset right now, and it's going through a reset, but the change, the plan, it doesn't change. He's still doing what he's called to do, but he's doing it in another set of conditions. You would agree with that, right? All right, so we can argue about that on Friday if you want to. This is called Arise, Move, and Go. The next event for me in relationship to this is in uh, the event of Noah, and this would be chapters 7 through 9. I'm not going to read chapter 7. I am going to read chapter 9, verse 1, because now God is going to give us insight into his speaking to Noah. Notice what God says. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be what? And do what? And do what? All right, so do you see a subtle hint here of continuity? All right, there are a number of corollaries here that are creating a coordinate plan, and obviously Noah and them are advancing history, are they not? And they're doing it in the context of a major reset, aren't they? Because what they're doing is they are responding to the flood. The flood has completely washed away the old world, as Peter called it. So uh, Noah and his family are taking up the task of advancing what was talked about in Genesis 1:26 and 27. Are you keeping up with me? Right. So even though all kind of crazy stuff has occurred, I don't want to really get distracted by that today. Even though crazy stuff has occurred back in Genesis 3 with this ugly snake, it's, it's crazy. God's plan is still moving. This is reset number two. This is reset number two. You guys keeping up with me? And we could drill down into it. I'm not going to do it. I want to go to reset number three. This is going to be in Genesis chapter 12, verses one through seven. And notice how it reads. Uh, now, the Lord had said to Abram, get thee up out of thy kindred and from your, kindred, your country and from your kindred and from your father's house unto a land that I will what? Yeah. Arise, moving. Yeah. Another reset is happening here another reset is happening here. So you got the first reset with Adam and Eve being transitioned out of the garden to deal with the world. That was a calamity on design. The second one was Noah and his eight souls who had to arise, move, and go, build an ark ready for the judgment, which came, wiped out everybody. Now we're starting again with Noah and his eight souls. Are you guys keeping up with me? So now that we get down here to Abraham, something wild has occurred for which God says, okay, I need to put my hands on another person to keep my plan going. What was the thing that was wild that happened for which God says, let me get a hold of Abraham. It was these fools that thought that they could build a tower in a city to heaven. Do you guys remember that? And God had to do what? Scatter them. Now, even in God scattering them, scattering them, God is still maintaining his plan. He's still back at Genesis 1, 26, 27. Now, again, so, so would you agree with me? When you look at Genesis 1, 26 and 27, you don't get all this stuff we're dealing with now that we're way over at, at Genesis chapter 12. There's no way you would have read in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, snakes, <laughs> right? fig <laughs> leaves, you know, getting kicked out of the garden and then having to deal with a worldwide flood and then having to deal with a bunch of fools thinking that they can build a tower to heaven without God. And now all of a sudden, God getting a hold to a brother that he wants to turn into a nomad. You didn't see all that in Genesis one twenty six or 27. Now you do. This is called progressive revelation. The reason you see it is because God's telling a story. It's a life story. It's a life story that's going to lead to a love story. Y'all keeping up with me? It's a life story leading up to a love story. And this here is that Venn diagram that I'm talking to us as couples about. Because you can see the Venn diagram. I'm I'm telling too much. But you should see the Venn diagram. And and we'll go back when we're done as I'm going to argue terms and comments in a moment. All right, so Abraham gets his business done. Let me walk that through. I got a little time. Verse 2 through 7. Verse 2 through 7. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and you shall be a what? Every time God puts his hands on one of these fellas, he's always talking blessing. You get it? I'm cheating because I just feel like you came out. I might as well help you, but you should be extracting these on your own. You should be extracting this on your own. This is how you come to know who God is and his purpose. Now, notice what it goes on to say verse the next five verses. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curse thee. And in thee shall all the what? All the what? Be what? Crazy. So here we are, even at the beginning where his son and daughter are just hugely privileged. And they mess up like I don't know, like nobody's business. They screwed up really bad, didn't they? Yep. And still God's still talking about blessing. And even though he has to flood, the, he has to, he has to clean the carpets, he's still talking blessings. He's still talking blessings, isn't he? This is, this is so important. This is a bird's eye view of things. Cause on the ground, it doesn't look this way. It doesn't look this way if you just stay horizontal at the level of the calamity of Adam and Eve and at the struggles of Noah. Noah had some struggles, you know that, both going in and going out. And, and, and Abraham, if we had to drill down into his life, it was pretty jacked up too on a horizontal level. And yet the continuity of God's purpose is actually a blessing that's expanding in his promise, is it not? All right, good. How many resets have we gone through so far? Good. Let's look at number four. I'm sorry. I want to read four more verses. I think I was wanting to go to seven because there's a reason. I don't know what it is. We'll find out. So Abraham departed as the Lord has spoken unto him and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed out of Haran. And, and of course, the, the narrative now is becoming much more acute here because in his obedience, we know now more about Abraham, do we? Abram is 75 years old. Abram loves his nephew Lot, right? The plot thickens. Lot thickens the plot. But God's, God's very much aware because remember, God doesn't react. He responds. He knows what he's going to do, right? Lot's going to play a role in the crazy because God creates order out of That's what God does, right? We, we bring to God chaos and he... <laughs> verse 5. Genesis twelve five And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother-in-law, brother-in-law, and all their substance that they had gathered and the souls that they had gotten in Haran, and they went forth. This is uh, uh, in the era of Chaldee, And they went forth to go into the land of Canaan and into the land of what? Canaan they what? All right, ground zero. Uh, I shouldn't tell you, but I, I'm putting it out there. Ground zero. What is ground zero? What is ground zero? Say it again. What is ground zero? There you go. And we see that just in the fourth reset, do we? Do we see it? So we actually have an origin and a landing place just in the fourth reset. If you gather your data like a bird's eye view scientist. Does that make some sense? You got a lot of data here. I want you to work with me now a little bit more All right, so we're moving from Abraham to who? All right, now look at point number four. Moses is given to us in Exodus 20, verse one. This is really interesting. So in Exodus 20, verse one, the reason why I'm here is because of a term that's gonna come up. And it's, you know what I need to do? Ah, I need to go back to Genesis chapter... uh, Genesis chapter... Uh, nine, verse seventeen, Genesis nine, seventeen. Here's what I want you to see. This is a statement that God makes to um, He makes it to um, Noah, and then also I need you to see it again with Abram. And so, notice what it says. And God said unto Noah, "This is the what of the what which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth." What is that token? The rainbow. All right. It's important for you to keep that in mind because people want to take the token away today. Right. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. All right. So now we're in Exodus chapter uh, 20. Um, look with me at verse one, of Exodus 20. You guys, oughta, you shouldn't know what this is about, what this event is about. So this is what is stated. And God spake all these words saying verse two. I want you to capture this. I am the Lord, your God, which of what? Out of the house of what? So where are they going? They're going to the same place that Abraham is. Is that right? What is that called? Canaan, just want you to know. So they're they're rising, moving, and going too. But, But you need to be careful about what God is doing with Moses as he is doing with Abraham, as he is doing with Noah, and as he is doing with Adam. And I could have did a better job of proving that, but I'll let that, I'll let it lie for now. Look with me at Exodus chapter, uh, maybe, maybe it's in uh, 20 verse 17. I'm just going to look at it before I go back to chapter one. Look at Exodus 20, 17. Maybe this will capture it. Um, so what I did in these verses was give you the whole of these 10 commandments. You guys notice that, right? Because you got the first commandment, God, so you shall have no other gods before me. Last commandment, you shall not commit, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's house, your neighbor's ass, ox, or any of that. You got that, right? That's the end of those 10 words. And I'm going to go back to my statement in a moment because I don't want to tell you because most of you have been reading your Bible enough to actually be able to uh, infer a particular kind of relationship that God is establishing with all these people. You should be able to infer that. Not maybe, not maybe you babies, but most of you should be able to infer this. And it's going to emerge in a minute. So I'll, I'll leave that there for now. but And it's going to show up a little bit more now. I'm going now from Moses to who? To David. For a significant reason. Uh, let me see how I can do this. Exodus chapter 1 verse 7. Exodus 1 7 and the children of Israel were what and what and what and did what and did what and they did what God's still keeping up with his plan isn't he is he keeping up with his plan okay just want you to know like God God's all right he's God's pretty well with the scheme nothing is out of order with it now all kind of crazy stuff going on You've got a bird's eye view that's really settled. On the ground, you've got chaos. What do we have on the ground? Genocide. What do we have on the ground? Uh, xenophobia. What do we have on the ground? Hostility. What do we have on the ground? We have a fascist totalitarian system that wants to exterminate God's people. That's on the ground. But up here at the bird's eye view, it's, it's consistent and clear. The plan has expanded. The plan has expanded even though the enemy is working harder god's purpose is expanding now israel is moving on because israel is a big part of god's plan we're still getting down the road aren't we arise moving go so the next one now is going to be david and in your own minds you can think about why am i making a correlation between adam noah abraham moses and david you'll see this shortly i'm in second samuel chapter 7 verse 12 At the part in which David has now occupied the throne, I have said this for many years to people, that King Saul was not recognized by God as his king. He was the people's king, but he was not God's king. It's important for you to know that. And and if we were really drilling down, and I don't want to do that today, but if we're drilling down, when God talked to Abram or Abram he changed his name he called his name Abraham this is Genesis 17 and he said nations and kings will come out of you this is why we're over at Moses and now we're at what because they come out of Abraham you're going to see a continuity going all the way back you should already be picking up on it now you should be all seeing all kind of threads we call this a matrix you should be seeing all kinds of threads You should be be seeing all kinds of connections that you can't separate if you wanted to. If you separated them, the history stops. If you separate them, the plan is aborted. Am I making sense? All right, so I'll, I'll, I'll tell you at the end. I'm just keeping you in suspense. Now notice what it says. And when your day shall be fulfilled, David, you shall sleep with your father and I will set up your seat after you, which shall proceed out of your bowels and I will establish his kingdom, right? This is God talking to David about his plan for David. And when he says his seed after him, who is he talking about in the progressive sense? Solomon, right? But then also, who is he talking about ultimately? Do you believe that? Is Jesus the son of David? Of course, of course, this is very important. So now I want you to just keep up with this. This is a, this is a brief Excursion through the scriptures. I'm helping you progress through history so you and I can actually get a better handle on what's going on with us now. We need a bird's eye view. Here we are. We are in uh, 2 Samuel 23. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 because I have time. I want you to capture it. This is David. David is old now. And the promise that you read in 2 Samuel 7 is about to come to pass. And David's going to tell you how he's thinking in preparation for his death. And I think this is a good way to think when you're a child of God. So notice what he says in verse one. Now, these be the what words of David? That means he's on his deathbed. David, the son of Jesse and the man who was raised up where? That means he was used to having a bird's eye view. Now, keeping up with me, David was used to having a bird's eye view. Was he not? He was king of Israel. In fact, David, we could contend that David was the greatest king on the earth beside the Lord Jesus. We could contend that, okay? In God's eyes, David was the man, okay? Everything that God meant to bring to pass in what we are heading towards in terms of an eschaton is intrinsically in David, it's inside the essence of David. That's why David is on high. And here's what David says. He says, God raised him up on high, the anointed of the God of who? All right, so we got this concept going on. I'm I'm telling you, we got this concept going on. We got Adam, we got Noah, we got Abraham, we got Isaac, we got Jacob, we got Moses, we got David. We got this concept going on, don't we? This concept that I want you to be able to identify as an important commons. There's a term that I want us to elucidate, and there's a commons I want us to get. A common, running, there's a common thread running through all this that without these two principles, none of this could be guaranteed to happen. You'll see it in a moment. So here's what he says. Here's what David says in verse 2 through 5. Keep up with me because this is about you. Verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. Verse 3. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spake to me, he that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. Here again, we have a bird's eye view, do we not? Remember what I told you in the beginning, the bird's eye view position that the believer has is that he is what? Seated with Christ. And I tell you that, and as a, as a person seated with Christ, you rule with him, and to rule with him is to have episcopate, oversight. You agree with that, don't you? Right. And this this is what David is simply saying. For those who have that position, you and I have to meet these requisites. The first is that he he that rules over men, you're, you're moving too quick. He that rules over men, going back to verse three. Thank you. He that rules over men must be what? The word is tzaddik. It means righteous, literally righteous. Are all of God's servants righteous? All right. That's a prerequisite. But, okay, so if you're if you are in, an, if you're in an, a bird's-eye-view position over things, if you are able to see what God sees, it's because the preconditions were met for you. You have to be what? Righteous to be in a position of ruling with God. Is that true for every believer? Right, so a believer should have the benefit of knowing that his or her position in Christ is that they have access to see things from God's perspective which should put them in a different emotional, psychological, and spiritual condition than people who are operating on the ground. Would you agree? All right, good. All right, good. Now, notice what it says. Ruling in the fear of God, that is the reverence of God. Verse four, two more. And he shall be as the what? Are believers that? He shall be as the light of the morning when the sun rises, even a morning without clouds as tender grass springing up out of the earth by the clear and shining of the rain after the rain. It's a beautiful metaphor of the character and benefit of those who have a bird's eye view, who operate in the authority of God. And therefore, what you and I see, what you and I perceive, how we understand the world is for their benefit. All right. So I'll say that one more time, and I'll keep going. You're not sitting up there like your Roman and Greek gods, you know. And the the Pantheon of the Roman and Greek gods, you have the senators who are kind of in heaven, looking down on the little peon human beings in their right, white togas. You guys know that. They're eating their grapes and whatever, and then sometimes they're laughing at the peons and you know wondering what they're up to, or maybe sending some thunderbolts down and and manipulating and conning them. That whole motif is the idea that the elite among the people have this kind of bird's eye view, too. But in God's kingdom, his people really do. But they do it from a position of benefiting humanity, not provoking harm to humanity. Am I making some sense? So when you and I are operating out of this position of being able to see things because we have oversight, we can see broadly and we can understand the landscape and we can be helpful to people who are tunnel vision and they're myopic because they are stuck on the horizontal plane of being on the ground. Does that make some sense? Very important. Okay. So that's the privilege we have. Now, one more verse. This is going to be important to my uh, leading you in these thoughts and then we'll... We're going to have a real tough time on Friday, but that's okay. Although my house be not, not so with God, what is David reflecting on? It's going, be key, it's going to be key to the commons. It's going to be key to the commons. What is he reflecting on when he says, although my house? Although my house? Although my house? All right, now I'll let you work on that. Yet he hath made with me an everlasting what? Be careful because this is exact. David is speaking for Christ. He's speaking for us. He's speaking for God of the two major elements that constitutes God's beginning plan all the way up to the present situation. Coming out of his mouth is my term and my comments. So I will come back here when we're done and we'll pull a veil off if you don't have it, but you should. Okay. Cause God is faithful here, and God is faithful here. Okay, so you'll get it. You'll get it. I'm helping those of you who are slow. Number six, I'm cons- I'm calling the six reset the humility of Christ. So I just I'm going to put this here just for the moment. The six reset is the humility of Christ. The humility of Christ. I am calling his first coming, his incarnation. Will you accept that? Christ's incarnation was a humility. Would you understand that? Right, because he condescended to take on our humanity. That was a major reset too, major reset event. This is gonna bump us up against the number seven and the reset of the number seven and the idea of, the uh, the uh, seven trumpets that we're going to deal with on Friday, you'll see it when we get there. Um, I'm uh, looking at the humili- uh, looking at Christ and His humility. I want to first start in Isaiah 42. I'm going to read verse six and seven. Isaiah 42, six and seven. This is a prophecy by Isaiah, seven hundred years before Jesus comes. I could probably read all the verses, but I just want you to hone in on. Remember, your eyes are dilated now, so you have clarity. Hone in on verse 6. This is the prophet Isaiah talking to us about Jesus. And he's speaking in the first person sense by the Spirit. And I'll give you a hint for those of you who don't quite know how to adjust your lens when, when God is talking. In this context, the Father is talking. God the Father is talking. I, the Lord, have called you. That's a subject-object distinction relationship. The subject is always doing the work, and the work is being done on the object. I, the Father, have called you the what? I've already taught you these, these paradigms. you got three major covenant paradigms. What are they? Father, son, king, servant, husband, wife. I, the Father, have called thee, all right, helping you in what? Is that true? When Jesus came, he came as a holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, knew no sin, did no sin, and it was no sin at all. No one could convince him of sin. Pilate, you or me. He was God's spotless lamb. He called him in righteousness, didn't he? Right. He says, and I will hold your hand. Did God keep his son? And I will keep thee and give thee for a what? All right. Key term, key term. And I will give thee for a covenant of the why. And for a light to the why. That's right. This is called a Hebrew idiom, double idiom, but it's encompassing the totality <clears throat> of the human species. The human species, in terms of God's purpose, is constituted by two people group on the horizontal level and one people group at the larger uh, kingdom level Jews and Gentiles. That's what your Bible talks about. So it's really talking about all of humanity Jews and Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles that remain merely a Jew and remain merely a Gentile are lost. They can only be saved when they actually become part of the church. Did that make some sense? Because the church of God is that one category that constitutes both Jew and Gentile. Didn't we learn that? Right. Jew, Gentile It's nothing to be a Jew. You're not saved just because you're a Jew. You're certainly not saved because you're Gentile. Both Jew and Gentile have to be in who? Christ, which means the Church, right? We learned that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Very important for you and I to to get that because when we work on it on Friday, this idea of the ecclesia, the church, the church is actually everything that we've been working through just now. The church, the ecclesia. We've been dealing with the ecclesia since Adam and Eve, have we not? It's just been working itself out historically in all of these bizarre unfolding narratives, but there has been a people that have been called out throughout all this. Y'all keeping up with me? So the Ecclesia is right here, isn't it? And and now the Ecclesia has served to bring someone special into the world. What's his name? There you go. I have called thee in righteousness. I will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you, keep thee and give you as a covenant for the people a light of the Gentiles. Verse 7 to open the eyes of the blind, to bring out the prisoners from the prison and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. Was that Messiah's work? Yes, yes, that was Messiah's work and in, 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 in extension, it would be our work as well. So many things that I could say here. I'm gonna do one more. Luke chapter 1, 68 through 73, because what, what um, Isaiah is saying is 700 years before Jesus comes now luke is going to be talking about the actual coming of jesus and here's what he says in luke chapter one verse uh, 58 68 i'm sorry luke 168 luke 168 please blessed be the lord god of israel for he has visited and redeemed his people verse 69 right so again, if you knew the context, you know who who's talking here. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant who? All right, so we're back to David again. Now, David encompassed a number of things, but David is 1,000 years before this person who is the subject of this prophecy. Who is this person? Jesus. So the person speaking is speaking about the promise that God made to David which David received back in 2 Samuel 7, your seed will sit on my throne, which is now being fulfilled in Luke one sixty eight, because the seed is here. Okay. Now I just want you to hear it through uh, verse 70. <clears throat> and he spake by the mouth of his holy, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began. So the prophets have been around since what? The beginning of the world. Verse 71. That we should be what? From our enemies and from the hand of all that what? Verse 72. To perform the mercy promised to our fathers. Stop right there because this is a key verse. Grab it. It's a key verse. To perform the mercies that were promised to our what? How far back? Adam. Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Jesus. Y'all got that? You see the continuity here? So what's beautiful about what's taking place here is no one can tell me that the first century saints were not theologically sound. They were profoundly theologically sound. They were clearer in many ways than Christians are today. You see how clear Zechariah is? under the Holy Spirit. He's prophesying concerning Jesus, is he not? He's saying this promise goes all the way back to the beginning of time. The Father had a purpose that he accomplished in that that, that, that little duo called uh, the image bearers of God, right? In the image of God made he them, male and female, created he them, right? Here we are with this now, and the terms are very clear there, to perform the mercy promise to our fathers and to remember his what? And remember his what? All right, very good, very good. So I've got you guys, having walked with me through briefly, seven resets, and I could argue them, I just want you to think them through, because that reset now actually leads to the first coming of Christ's incarnation, which is summed up in his resurrection, right? Right? because he came to die and then to what? Rise again, because without the resurrection, everything going forward would never have occurred. So when Jesus resurrected from the grave, what did he also do? He ascended, didn't he? Did he ascend? And then he did what? He took his father's what? Throne. And where he is, is where we are. That's Ephesians chapter two, verse Um, Five through 8. Can you pull that up? I'm going to stop there and I'm going to ask you guys, what are the two terms that we need to capture to be prepared for a big picture scenario around something extremely important as we deal with the seven trumpets on Friday? Even we, even when we were dead in sins, has he quickened us together with Christ? By grace are you saved. So you and I we're quickened together with Christ. Christ was quickened. We're not talking just his resurrection. We're talking his ascension, right? So notice what he goes on to say, verse 6. And he has raised us up together and made us to sit together where? <laughs> bird's eye view. You got the bird's eye view? And you're not there by yourself. You're seated with who? That's exactly right. This, this infers a lot about two Things in terms of these resets, they were all predicated, they were promises predicated upon two things. One is the term that you want to keep in mind begins with a C. What is it? Y'all got it? Important. This is what we call covenant theology. God is a covenant keeping God. It's called covenant theology. All through your Bible, the term covenant is used it's either explicitly used or inferred. Like when God has a relationship with someone in terms of his plan of redemption, it's always covenantal. God is a God of covenant. And so that word is used and that covenant purpose that God sets out promise and purpose is fulfilled in a particular framework. And that framework is, Is consistent all through the Bible and it begins with a letter F and who knows what that is. What is it? What is it? What is it? Say it again. You got to get it. It's called family. It's called family. Right. I want to make sure you get these two and then we're going to stop here. This is so important. So. If God is God of a covenant, that means he makes plans, purposes, promises, and he tells you he's going to do his part, he wants you to do your part, right? That means he's a faithful God. He's not going to lie, fail, or what? That's right. He's not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent, right? If he said it, he'll do it. If he declared it, he'll what? Make it good because he's a covenant-keeping God. Now, you and I don't appreciate covenants much because we are fundamentally covenant breakers. Are you keeping up with me? We are fundamentally covenant breakers, but God's not a covenant breaker because every promise he makes, he can keep. And do you also know inherent in his promise is a promise to keep us even when we don't keep the covenant? Did you know that? And that can be personified in a person and that person is who? Ask what Isaiah 42, 7 was saying and I will make you a covenant for the people. So the covenant of the people of God is a person. His name is what? That's part of our mission statement in our church. And the reason that you need to know that is uh, when God makes a covenant with you and he makes a covenant with me, it's important to know that God wants that covenant to be kept. And in order for God to secure the keeping of that covenant on our part with him, we had to have a vouchsafe, a mediator someone to actually take our place in the covenant terms. Does that make some sense? Right. And so this idea of what we call union with Christ is the way that God secures the blessings of the covenant for us. I mean, if we're arguing that we are seated in heavenly places in, in Christ Jesus, if we're arguing that's our position, bird's eye view, it means we've met the terms, have we not? but we have not met them in ourselves. We've met them in our substitute and in our surety. What is his name? Now, Jesus happens to be the one of whom God was talking about going all the way back to Adam and Eve because the family thing is about the seed. The family thing is about the seed. So the commons running through the whole biblical theological journey that we read, the common is this. God made a covenant with Adam. He made a covenant with Adam. He made a covenant with Noah. He made a covenant with Abraham. He made a covenant with Moses. That was the law. He made a covenant with David. He made a covenant with Jesus. He made a covenant with us. Did he make a covenant with us? All right, so I want you to capture that. The gospel is a covenant. Is that true? So our master before he died brought us around the table this is what we saw very clearly in the exodus chapter 24 account when god created the matriculated order hierarchy of moses and then joshua and the 70 elders you guys remember that and how god allowed them to see his glory and he did not put his hand over them he allowed them to enjoy his glory y'all remember that and how they did what they ate and what they ate and what what did they do they ate and drank come on now you guys know what they did what That's called fellowship. Is that what that's called? And what do we do first Sunday every month? It's a symbol of the covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood, which was shed for you. Y'all keeping up with me? So the King of glory, Jesus, calls us to the table of fellowship. So like where he is, we are also. Isn't that what he said in John 14? He says, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you what? may be also. I wasn't for when you die. That was upon his resurrection and ascension. We are there now. That's John 17. Father, I will that all those that you give me be with me where I am, that they might behold my glory that they might know the love that we have towards each other. Don't we have that by the spirit of the living God? Don't we have that in the gospel? So now here's what I'm saying to you. I'm going to shut it down for you. And then we're going to pick it up on Friday. We are dealing with historically seven resets from the beginning of time to the coming of Jesus. I told you his humility was the sixth reset. His exaltation was the seventh reset because in that seventh reset, Jesus gave the children of Israel, through his apostles, 37 years to get it right. Do you guys remember that? I've been teaching this for quite some time now. So he, he, he told us, Matthew 24, verse 1, pull it up, I'm almost done. The disciples were enamored by the temple, weren't they? And it was the temple that, that, that originally was given to Moses in the tabernacle form, and then it was given to David in the temple form, right? But remember what God said, his son would sit in the temple. That's what he said. Now, we know that son is Jesus. But we also know that that temple was not the physical temple in Israel. That temple had to be knocked down. So if you notice what Jesus is saying in chapter 24, verse 1, Jesus went out and departed from the what? And his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple, verse 2. And Jesus said unto them, see ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, there shall be left here, uh, not here one stone upon another that shall not be what? A reset is coming. A reset is coming. Is that what he's saying? Why? Because the temple was the magnanimous symbol of God's presence under the old covenant. But the old covenant is what? Done away. And what was the evidence that the old covenant was done away? The temple came down because now the temple is no longer wood, hay, and stones, or gold and silver, but living epistles written and known on the hearts of men, living stones placed in the temple of God, which are the people of God. Would you agree with that? Ye are the temple of the living God and the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now you and I are part of that seventh reset that has been going on now for 2,000 years. You keeping up with me? And in the temple is the King of glory, and in, in the temple are all of the artifacts of his redemptive purposes and revelation by which men and women could be saved. When they come to you, they should be coming to a person that has a bird's eye view on what's going on in the world, When they come to you, they should be able to understand what the predicament of humanity is. We are sinners and we need a savior. And that the real resolution to the conflicts in our world is reconciliation with God. See, every believer is a temple in that regard. And we can help men and women figure out what the heck is going on in their life so long as we maintain a what? Bird's eye view. So we're gonna be dealing with the seven trumpets in Revelation chapter 11, and I'm going to be talking to you about why I believe we are there, okay? So we just made an excursion. You learned so much about your Bible today. Didn't you learn so much about your Bible today? All right, I'll see you guys on Friday.